Chapter 7 The next day, Oakhurst was full of people, and Mrs Oak, to my amazement, was doing the honours of it as if a house full of commonplace, noisy young creatures bent upon flirting and tennis were her usual idea of felicity. The afternoon of the third day, oh, they'd come for an electioneering ball and stayed three nights, the weather changed. It turned suddenly very cold and began to pour. Everyone was sent indoors, and there was general gloom suddenly over the company. Mrs Oak seemed to have got sick of her guests, and was listlessly lying back on a couch, paying not the slightest attention to the chattering and piano strumming in the room, when one of the guests suddenly proposed that they should play charades. He was a distant cousin of the Oaks, a sort of fashionable artistic bohemian, swelled out intolerable conceit by the amateur actor vogue of a season. It will be lovely in this marvellous old place, he cried, just to dress up and parade around and feel as if we belonged to the past. I have heard you have a marvellous collection of old costumes, more or less ever since the days of Noah somewhere, Cousin Bill. The whole party exclaimed in joy at this proposal. William Oak looked puzzled for a moment and glanced at his wife, who continued to lie listless on her sofa. "'There is a press full of clothes belonging to the family,' he answered dubiously, apparently overwhelmed by the desire to please his guests. "'But, oh, but, I don't know whether it's quite respectful to dress up in the clothes of the dead people.' "'Oh, fiddlestick!' cried the cousin. "'What do dead people know about it? And "'Besides,' he added with mock seriousness, I assure you, we shall behave in the most reverent way and feel quite solemn about it all, if only you will give us the key, old man. Again, Mr. Oak looked towards his wife, and again met only her vague, absent glance. Very well, he said, and led his guests upstairs. An hour later, the house was filled with the strangest crew and the strangest noises. I had entered, to a certain extent, into William Oak's feeling of unwillingness to let his ancestors' clothes and personality be taken in vain, but when the masquerade was complete, I must say the effect was quite magnificent. A dozen youngish men and women, those who were staying in the house and some neighbours who'd come for lawn tennis and dinner, were rigged out, under the direction of the theatrical cousin, in the contents of that oaken press. And I have never seen a more beautiful sight than the panelled corridors, the carved and escutcheoned staircase, the dim drawing rooms, their faded tapestries, the great hall with its vaulted and ribbed ceiling, dotted about with groups or single figures that seem to have come straight from the past. Even William Oak, who, besides myself and a few elderly people, was the only man not masqueraded, seemed delighted and fired by the sight. A certain schoolboy character suddenly came out in him, and finding that there was no costume left for him, he rushed upstairs and presently returned in the uniform he had worn before his marriage. I thought, I had really never seen so magnificent a specimen of the handsome Englishman. He looked, despite all the modern associations of his costume, more genuinely old worlds than all the rest. A knight for the Black Prince or Sydney, with his admirably regular features and 
beautiful fair hair and complexion. After a minute, even the elderly people had got costumes of some sort, dominoes arranged at the moment, and hoods and all manner of disguises made out of pieces of old embroidery and oriental stuffs and furs, and very soon this rabble of maskers had become, so to speak, completely drunk with its own amusement, with the childishness, and if I may say so, the barbarism. The vulgarity underlying the majority even of well-bred English men and women. Mr Oak himself doing the mountebank like a schoolboy at Christmas. Where's Mrs Oak? Where is Alice? Someone suddenly asked. Mrs Oak had vanished. I could fully understand that to this eccentric being, with her fantastic, imaginative, morbid passion for the past... Such a carnival as this must be positively revolting, and, absolutely indifferent as she was to giving offence, I could imagine how she would have retired, disgusted and outraged, to dream her strange daydreams in the yellow room. But a moment later, as we were all noisily preparing to go into dinner, the door opened, and a strange figure entered. "'stranger than any of these others "'who are profaning the clothes of the dead. "'A boy, slight and tall, "'in a brown riding coat, "'leathern belt and big buff boots, "'a little grey cloak over one shoulder, "'a large grey hat slouched over the eyes, "'a dagger and pistol at the waist. "'It, it was Mrs Oak, "'her eyes preternaturally bright, "'and her whole face lit up, with a bold, perverse smile. Everyone exclaimed and stood aside. Then there was a moment's silence, broken by faint applause, even to a crew of noisy boys and girls playing the fool in the garments of men and women long dead and buried. There is something questionable in the sudden appearance of a young married woman, the mistress of the house, in a riding coat and jackboots, and Mrs Oak's expression did not make the jest seem any the less questionable. "'What is that costume?' asked the theatrical cousin, who, after a second, had come to the conclusion that Mrs Oak was merely a woman of marvellous talent, whom he must try and secure for his amateur troupe next season. "'It is the dress in which an ancestress of ours, my namesake, Alice Oak,' used to go out riding with her husband in the days of Charles I, she answered, and took her seat at the head of the table. Involuntarily, my eyes sought those of Oak at Oakhurst. He, who blushed as easily as a girl of sixteen, was now as white as ashes, and I noticed that he had pressed his hand almost convulsively to his mouth. "'Don't you recognise my dress, William?' asked Mrs Oak, fixing her eyes upon him with a cruel smile. He did not answer, and there was a moment's silence, which the theatrical cousin had the happy thought of breaking by jumping on his seat and emptying off his glass at the exclamation, To the health of the two Alice Oaks of the past and the present. Mrs Oak nodded, and, with an expression I had never seen in her face before, answered in a loud and aggressive tone, To the health of the poet, Mr. Christopher Lovelock, if his ghost be honouring this house with its presence. I suddenly felt as if I were in a madhouse. 
across the table in the midst of this room full of noisy wretches, tricked out red, purple, blue and party-coloured, as men and women of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, as improvised Turks and Eskimos, as dominoes and, and clowns with faces painted and corked and flowered over. I seem to see that sanguine sunset, washing like a sea of blood over the heather, to where, by the black pond and the wind-warped firs, there lay the body of Christopher Lovelock, with his dead horse near him. The yellow gravel and lilac ling soaked crimson all around, and above emerged, as out of the redness, the pale blonde head covered with the grey hat, the absent eyes, and strange smile of Mrs Oak. It seemed to me horrible, vulgar, abominable, as if I had got inside a madhouse. Chapter 8 From that moment I noticed a change in William Oak, or rather a change that had probably been coming on for some time got to the stage of being noticeable. I don't know whether he had any words with his wife about her masquerade of that unlucky evening. On the whole, I decidedly think not. Oak was with everyone a diffident and reserved man, and most of all so with his wife. Besides, I can fancy that he would experience a positive impossibility of putting into words any strong feeling of disapprobation towards her, that his disgust would necessarily be silent. But... Be that as it may, I perceived very soon that the relations between my host and hostess had become exceedingly strained. Mrs Oak, indeed, had never paid much attention to her husband, and seemed merely a trifle more indifferent to his presence than she'd been before. But Oak himself, although he affected to address her at meals from a desire to conceal his feeling, and a fear of making the position disagreeable to me— very clearly could scarcely bear to speak to or even see his wife. The poor fellow's honest soul was quite brimful of pain, which he was determined not to allow to overflow, and which seemed to filter into his whole nature and poison it. This woman had shocked and pained him more than was possible to say, and yet it was evidence that he could neither cease loving her nor commence comprehending her real nature— I sometimes felt, as we took our long walks through the monotonous country, across the oak-dotted grazing grounds, and by the brink of the dull green serried hop rows, talking at rare intervals about the value of crops, the drainage of the estate, the village schools, the, the Primrose League, and the iniquities of Mr Gladstone, while Oak of Oakhurst carefully cut down every tall thistle that caught his eye, I sometimes felt, I say... An intense and impotent desire to enlighten this man about his wife's character. I seemed to understand it so well, and to understand it well seemed to imply such a comfortable acquiescence. And it seemed so unfair that just he should be condemned to puzzle forever over this enigma, and wear out his soul trying to comprehend what now seemed so plain to me. But how would it ever be possible to get this serious, conscientious, slow-brained representative of English simplicity and honesty and thoroughness 
to understand the mixture of self-engrossed vanity, of shallowness, of poetic vision, of love, of morbid excitement, that walked this earth under the name of Alice Oak. And so, Oak of Oakhurst was condemned never to understand, but he was condemned also to suffer from his inability to do so. The poor fellow was constantly straining after an explanation of his wife's peculiarities, and although the effort was probably unconscious, it caused him a great deal of pain. The gash, the maniac frown, as my friend calls it, between his eyebrows, seemed to have grown a permanent feature of his face. Mrs Oak, on her side, was making the very worst of the situation. Perhaps she resented her husband's tacit reproval of that masquerade knight's freak, and determined to make him swallow more of the stuff, for she clearly thought that one of William's peculiarities, and one for which she despised him, was that he could never be goaded into an outspoken expression of disapprobation, that from her he would swallow any amount of bitterness without complaining. At any rate, she now adopted a perfect policy of teasing and shocking her husband about the murder of Lovelock. She was perpetually alluding to it in her conversation, discussing in his presence what had or had not been the feelings of the various actors in the tragedy of 1626, and insisting upon her resemblance and almost identity with the original Alice Oak. Something had suggested to her eccentric mind it would be delightful to perform in the garden at Oakhurst, under the huge ilexes and elms, a little mask which she had discovered among Christopher Lovelock's works, and she began to scour the country and enter into vast correspondence for the purpose of effectuating the scheme. Letters arrived every other day from the theatrical cousin, whose only objection was that Oakhurst was too remote a locality for an entertainment in which he foresaw great glory to himself and every now and then there would arrive some young gentleman or lady whom Alice Oak had sent for to see whether they would do. I saw very plainly that performance would never take place. Mrs Oak herself had no intention that it ever should. She was one of those creatures to whom realisation of a project is nothing, and who enjoy plan-making almost the more for knowing that all will stop short at the plan. Meanwhile, this perpetual talk about the pastoral, about Lovelock, this continual attitudinizing as the wife of Nicholas Oak, had the further attraction to Mrs Oak of putting her husband into a condition of frightful though suppressed irritation, which she enjoyed with the enjoyment of a perverse child. Oh, you must not think I looked on indifferent. Although I admit that this was the perfect treat to an amateur student of character like myself. I really did feel most sorry for poor Oak and frequently quite indignant with his wife. I was several times on the point of begging her to have more consideration for him, even of suggesting that this kind of behaviour, particularly before a comparative stranger like me, was very poor taste. But there was something elusive about Mrs Oak, which made it next to impossible to speak seriously with her. Besides... I was by no means sure that any interference on my part would not merely animate her perversity. One evening, a curious incident took place. We had just sat down to dinner. The Oaks, the theatrical cousin who was down for a couple of days, and three or four neighbours. It was dusk, and the yellow light of the candles mingled charmingly with the greyness of the evening. 
Mrs. Oak was not well, and had been remarkably quiet all day, more diaphanous, strange, and far away than ever, and her husband seemed to have felt a sudden return of tenderness, almost of compassion, for this delicate, fragile creature. We had been talking of quite indifferent matters, when I saw Mr. Oak suddenly turn very white, and look fixedly for a moment at the window opposite to his seat. "'Who's that fellow looking in at the window and making signs to you, Alice? "'Damn his impudence!' he cried, and jumping up, ran to the window, opened it, and passed out into the twilight. We all looked at each other in surprise. Some of the party remarked upon the carelessness of servants and letting nasty-looking fellows hang about the kitchen. Others told stories of tramps and burglars. Mrs. Oak did not speak, but I noticed the curious, distant-looking smile in her thin cheeks. After a minute, William Oak came in, his napkin in his hand. He shut the window behind him and silently resumed his place. "'Well, who was it?' we all asked. "'Nobody. I... I must have made a mistake,' he answered, and turned crimson, while he busily peeled a pear. "'It was probably Lovelock,' remarked Mrs. Oak, just as she might have said, "'It was probably the gardener.' but with that faint smile of pleasure still in her face. Except the theatrical cousin, who burst into a loud laugh, none of the company had ever heard Lovelock's name, and, doubtless imagining him to be some natural appanage of the Oak family, groom or farmer, said nothing. So the subject dropped. From that evening onwards, things began to assume a different aspect. That incident was the beginning of a perfect system... A system of what? I I scarcely know how to call it. A system of grim jokes on the part of Mrs Oak, of superstitious fancies on the part of her husband. A system of mysterious persecutions on the part of a less earthly tenant of Oakhurst. Well, yes, after all, why not? We have all heard of ghosts, had uncles, cousins, grandmothers, nurses who have seen them. We are all a bit afraid of them at the bottom of our soul, so why shouldn't they be? I am too sceptical to believe in the impossibility of anything, for my part. Besides, when a man has lived throughout a summer in the same house with a woman like Mrs Oak of Oakhurst, he gets to believe in the possibility of a great many improbable things, I assure you as a mere result of believing in her. And when you should come to think of it, why not? That a weird creature, visibly not of this earth, a reincarnation of a woman who had murdered her lover two centuries and a half ago, that such a creature should have the power of attracting about her, being altogether superior to earthly lovers, the man who loved her in that previous existence, whose love for her was his death. What is there astonishing in that? Mrs. Oak herself, I feel quite persuaded, believed, or half believed it, indeed she very seriously admitted the possibility thereof, one day that I made the suggestion half in jest. At all events, it rather pleased me to think so. It fitted in so well with the whole woman's personality. It explained those hours and hours spent all alone in the yellow room, where the very air with its scent of heady flowers and old perfumed stuffs, seemed redolent of ghosts. It explained that strange smile, which was not for any of us, and yet was not merely for herself. That 
strange, far-off look in the wide, pale eyes. I liked the idea. And I liked to tease, or rather to delight her with it. How should I know that the wretched husband would take such matters seriously? He became day by day more silent and perplexed looking, and as a result worked harder, and probably with less effect, at his land-improving schemes and political canvassing. It seemed to me that he was perpetually listening, watching, waiting for something to happen. A word spoken suddenly, a sharp opening of a door, would make him start, turn crimson, and almost tremble. The mention of Lovelock brought a helpless look, half a convulsion like that of a man overcome by great heat, into his face. And his wife, so far from taking any interest in his altered looks, went on irritating him more and more. Every time that the poor fellow gave one of these starts of his, or turned crimson at the sudden sound of a footstep, Mrs Oak would ask him, with her contemptuous indifference, whether he'd seen Lovelock. I soon began to perceive that my host was getting perfectly ill. He would sit at meals never saying a word, with his eyes fixed scrutinisingly on his wife, as if faintly trying to solve some dreadful mystery, while his wife, ethereal, exquisite, went on talking in her listless way about the mask, about Lovelock, always about Lovelock. During our walks and rides, which we continued pretty regularly, he would start whenever in the roads or the lanes surrounding Oakhursts, or in its grounds we perceived a figure in the distance. I have seen him tremble at what, on nearer approach, I could scarcely restrain my laughter on discovering to be some well-known farmer or neighbour or servant. Once, as we were returning home at dusk, he suddenly caught my arm and pointed across the oak-dotted pastures in the direction of the garden, then started off almost at a run, with his dog behind him, as if in pursuit of some intruder. "'What is it?' I asked. Mr Oak merely shook his head mournfully. Sometimes in the early autumn twilights, when the white mists rose from the parkland and the rooks formed long black lines on the palings, I almost fancy I saw him start at very trees and bushes. The outlines of distant oast houses, with their conical roofs and projecting veins, like jibing fingers in the half-light. Um, your husband is ill, I once ventured to remark to Mrs Oak, as she sat for the hundredth and thirtieth of my preparatory sketches. I somehow could never get beyond the preparatory sketches with her. She raised her beautiful, wide, pale eyes, making as she did so that exquisite curve of the shoulders and neck and delicate pale head that I so vainly longed to reproduce. I don't see it, she answered quietly. If he is, why doesn't he go up to town and see the doctor? It's merely one of his glum fits. You should not tease him about Lovelock, I added very seriously. He will get to believe in him. Why not? If he sees him, why, he sees him. He would not be the only person that has done so. And she smiled faintly and half perversely, as her eyes sought that usual, distant, indefinable something. But Oak got worse. He was growing perfectly unstrung, like a hysterical woman. One evening that we were sitting alone in the smoking room, he began unexpectedly a rambling discourse about his wife, how he'd first known her when they were children, 
how they'd gone to the same dancing school near Portland Place, how her mother, his aunt-in-law, had brought her for Christmas to Oakhurst while he was on his holidays, how finally, 13 years ago, when he was 23 and she was 18, they'd been married, how terribly he had suffered when they'd been disappointed of their baby, and she'd nearly died of the illness. "'I do not mind about the child, you know,' he said in an excited voice. "'Although there will be an end of us now, and Orkhurst will go to the curtsies. "'I minded only about Alice.' "'It was next inconceivable, this poor excited creature, "'speaking almost with tears in his voice and his eyes, "'was the quiet, well-got-up, irreproachable young ex-guardsman "'who'd walked into my studio a couple of months before.' Oak was silent for a moment, looking fixedly at the rug at his feet, when suddenly he burst out into a scarce audible voice. If you know how I cared for Alice, how I still care for her, I could kiss the ground she walks on, I would give anything in my life any day, if only she would look for two minutes as if she liked me a little as if she didn't utterly despise me. And the poor fellow burst into a hysterical laugh, which was almost a sob. Then he suddenly began to laugh outright, exclaiming with a sort of vulgarity of intonation which was extremely foreign to him. Damn it, old fellow! This is a queer world we live in! And rang for more brandy and soda which he was beginning, I noticed, to take pretty freely now, although he had almost been a blue-ribbon man, as much so as is possible for a hospitable country gentleman, when I first arrived. 